0: So this morning we're looking at Psalm 34. If you, uh, if you know, we've been, we've been going through 1 Samuel, and this psalm, um, it goes right in line with, with what we just read in 1 Samuel 21, when, when he comes before the king uh, of uh, Achish, is his name. His name is Abimelech here. That is really just a kingly title, Abimelech. You see that with lots of different kings. It's a royal title, but his, his historical name was Achish. Um, and, and if you recall, this is when David went down there and he, he acted like he was insane. Right? He, was in front of, he was in Gath, he was with the Philistines, and he, um, he didn't know if he was going to make it out. Um, but the Lord sustained him. And so this is the psalm, this is David's prayer, essentially, uh, of, of God's salvation for him. So if you would please stand for the reading of God's word from Psalm 34. This is God's holy, inspired, and inerrant word for you this morning of David when he changed his behavior before Abimelech so that he drove him out and he went away. I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise shall continually be in my mouth. My soul makes its boast in the Lord. Let the humble hear and be glad. O magnify the Lord with me and let us exalt his name together. I sought the Lord and he answered me. And delivered me from all my fears. Those who look to him are radiant, and their faces shall never be ashamed. This poor man cried, and the Lord heard him and saved him out of all his troubles. The angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him and delivers them. Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. Oh, fear the Lord, you his saints. For those who fear him have no lack. The young lions suffer want and hunger, but those who seek the Lord lack no good thing. Come, O children, listen to me. I will teach you the fear of the Lord. What man is there who desires life and loves many days that he may see good? Keep your tongue from evil and your lips from speaking deceit. Turn away from evil and do good. Seek peace and pursue it. Affliction will slay the wicked, and those who hate the righteous will be condemned. The Lord redeems the life of his servants. None of those who take refuge in him will be condemned. This is God's word. You may be seated. Let's pray together. Father, as we contemplate your word this morning, would you grip my heart as I speak from your word, and would you grip all of our hearts? with your promise to us in Christ Jesus that you are for us because of him. So may our faith be in him all our days. So Enlighten our minds this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. There's a big difference between knowing something in theory and knowing something through experience. How many of you have been to the Grand Canyon? Wow, it's like three fourths of the room. Awesome. So I have as well. But suppose I hadn't, and um, and I were to tell you all these facts about the Grand Canyon, how wide it is, that it's over a mile deep, where it is geographically in Arizona. Now, if I were to give you all that information and tell you I've seen it in a picture. Would you say that I really understand or really know and experience the Grand Canyon in that way? No, right? I've just seen it in theory. I've seen the statistics about the Grand Canyon. If you've actually been there, you understand that you really don't know the Grand Canyon and understand the immensity of it unless you've actually seen it with your own eyes. How many have actually hiked down into the canyon? Okay, about three or four of you, so a lot less. I myself have not hiked down. I I just went around the rim. But if you've hiked down into it, you have understood it even more on a a deeper level, right? You've gone down into it. You've seen the layers of sediment. You've seen the red uh, sediment. You've seen the Colorado River at the bottom of it. You've experienced it. You know it. You've seen the details of it. Jonathan Edwards once wrote, there is a difference between having an opinion about God, having an opinion that God is holy and gracious, versus having a sensory experience of the loveliness and the beauty of His holiness and grace. He said, there's a difference between having a rational judgment that honey is sweet and having actually tasted of its sweetness. In the same way, we can't be content with a mere idea of God and His love. We must move toward knowing Him and tasting of His love. You see, God is not a theory. He's not an idea. He's a person to be known and to be enjoyed and to have a relationship with. It would be like having the most amazing Thanksgiving feast in front of your eyes. Turkey, mashed potatoes, stuffing, green bean casserole, all laid out before you. But instead of eating it and enjoying it, you're content with the rational argument that it's delicious. And that satisfies you, and you walk away. No one in their right mind would be content with a mere agreement That this Thanksgiving feast is delicious and then move on. No, the goodness of the meal must be tasted and enjoyed and consumed to be fully understood because that is how food and our bellies are designed, right? To be enjoyed, to be tasted. We are meant to eat and exclaim, That was delicious. I don't know if there's any Bill Murray fans out there, but if you remember the movie, What About Bob? He uh, is in therapy, and he sort of is stalking his therapist and their family on vacation. And he uh, somehow winds up at their house, and they're having dinner, and he shows up at at their dinner. They invite him in. They're trying to be nice to him. And as he's eating the dinner, he just... He has these audible, mmm, that is so delicious. And he keeps going, mmm, 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 mmm. And he comments on the food all throughout to the point where his therapist, it's just driving him, his, him crazy and he has this outburst of anger at, at Bob. I actually have a, someone in my family, my brother-in-law, who is prone to making these audible noises as he's eating because he's so, he loves his, the food he's eating. is so delicious. He can't contain himself. Can you imagine being silent during the most amazing meal you've ever had? Just keeping it to yourself? Likewise, God cannot be fully appreciated. He cannot be fully understood until He's delighted in Until you taste of Him. Until He's enjoyed. Until you find your satisfaction in Him. Until you've tasted and seen that the Lord is good. You don't really understand Him. This is one of the blessings of spending time with an older saint. Perhaps even one who's at the end of their earthly pilgrimage. Through their trials and through their joys and through their sorrows, they've truly tasted that the Lord is good as they've entrusted their lives unto him. As life got bitter, God's love for them got sweeter. But we run into a difficulty as we journey in our Christian lives, we, we have a taste, not just for God, but we have a taste and we get hungry for the things of this world, don't we? We gain an appetite for the things that this world offers and our, and our taste for God struggles or diminishes. But it doesn't have to be that way. We don't have to let that happen in our Christian life. Kyle Strobel writes that grasping the path of glory is really just grasping onto Jesus By focusing our attention on Jesus and the Jesus way, we come to gain a taste for this way over others. And some of the fleshliness that used to taste so good is now bitter. And we're walking a path of putting to death our sin by slowly conforming to God's glory and beauty. And in doing so, the sin that still wages war within us begins to die. That's what we call sanctification. You become more and more hungry for the things of God. And the things of this world become more bitter to you. So The question this morning for you is is how do we develop a taste and desire for God? David, the psalmist here, gives us four ways to grow in our desire for God. I don't have it in your bulletin, but I'll, I'll repeat them so you can hear them. Write them down. We must realize and understand four truths and how to grow in, in, our, in our love and enjoyment and appetite for God. Number one, salvation is outside of you. It's the first truth. Salvation is outside of you. The second truth is, in seeking Him, you will find Him. In seeking God, you will find God. Number three, in crying to Him, He will hear you. And lastly, He will keep you by His power and empower you. By his grace. I'll repeat those as we go back through them. But the first one is salvation is outside of you. Salvation is outside of you. There's a story about G.K. Chesterton. He's a British author in the early 1900s. And around 1908, the London Times asked him, along with some other notable authors, to write an article answering the question, what is wrong with the world? What is wrong with the world? Well, Chesterton's response was to send them a brief letter that said, Dear Sir, regarding your article, What is wrong with the world? I am. Yours truly, G.K. Chesterton. You see, Chesterton took to heart the words of Paul to Timothy in 1 Timothy 1, where Paul says, Here is a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance, that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom... I am the worst, or I am the chief sinner. You see, Chesterton was given the opportunity to point the finger and the blame to all the cultural woes that he could think of. Anything he could conceive of that was wrong in our culture to address any issue he felt was pressing on society to speak to that sin, but he chose to humbly and directly address the plank in his own eye. that that I'm the problem with this world, that that it starts here in my own heart. And so the gospel teaches, the gospel of of our Bibles, the gospel of Jesus Christ teaches that if we are the biggest problem, the answer to our problem can't be anything inside of us. It must come from outside of us. And so the, the solution to our problem is not from within, but it's outside of us. Our hope must be in God to save us. So look at verses 1 through 11. As we scan through here, look at all the references to the Lord. I will bless the Lord at all times, verse 1. My soul makes its boast in the Lord. Verse 3, oh magnify the Lord with me. I sought the Lord, verse 4. Look to him, verse 5. This poor man cried, and the Lord, verse 6, heard him. The angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him. Verse 8, taste and see that the Lord is good. Fear the Lord, verse 9. Those who seek the Lord lack no good thing, verse 10. Verse 11, come, children, listen to me. I'll teach you about the fear of the Lord. The first 11 verses, again and again, the repetition is what? The Lord, he is the one who saves. He is the one who our hope must be in. It can't come from David. It can't come from me. It can't come from you. Our help comes from outside of ourselves. Philippians chapter 3, Paul says it this way. For his sake I've suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I might gain Christ. And be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law. See, Paul is saying, "I cannot earn anything. I cannot save myself. I can't have my own righteousness. It's a righteousness that comes apart from the law. He says, "But that which comes from faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. Paul understood he needed to be right with God, that it could not be his own righteousness. It had to come from outside. As the reformers called it, it had to be an alien righteousness. Foreign to you, outside of yourself. And Paul went to great lengths to serve God, didn't he? Planted churches. He wrote most of our New Testament. Think about all the things Paul could boast in. That he's done, the great things he's achieved, but he didn't do it to save himself. That's what he's saying. He didn't do it to earn a righteousness for himself because his righteousness was already in Christ who had already saved him. His salvation was outside of himself. And so that's the first truth of this psalm, that salvation's outside of you. It's not within you. You can't save yourself. It's outside, not inside. Second truth. If you seek him, you'll find him. If you seek him, you'll find him. Look at verse 4. David says, I sought the Lord... And he answered me and delivered me from all my fears. Brothers and sisters, maybe you need to hear this this morning. So I'm going to say it to you twice. God is always ready to receive you. I'm going to say it again. God is always ready to receive you. Maybe you've been thinking that God is really tired of me. That he's really tired of my habitual sins. He's really tired of my slow growth and sanctification. And he's tired of me. And he wants to drop me. He wants to to block my calls. He wants to unfriend me. Or maybe you're thinking, God will never receive me based upon what I've done. Based upon what I've thought. Based upon what I've said. Well, let me point you to true verses that reinforce this truth that God is always ready to receive you. Look at verse 5. Those who look to Him are radiant, and their faces shall never be ashamed. It's like looking, looking at God is like looking at the sun, which I don't advise. It's like looking at this immense light shines upon you and gives you this glow. Don't Christians have a certain glow to them sometimes? He's like this ever-shining light of grace and truth and love. Looking at Him removes our guilt, removes our shame, as verse 5 says. He's our refuge. So that's the first verse to look at. And the second one is, is verse 22, all the way at the end of the psalm. The Lord redeems the life of His servants. None of those who take refuge in Him will be condemned. None of those who take refuge in Him will be condemned. So He takes our shame, verse 5, and 22 He takes our condemnation. Paul puts it in Romans 8.1, There is thou therefore now no condemnation, for those who are in Christ Jesus. There's no way you can be condemned by the law or your failings or your sin anymore. Why? Because Christ has taken it upon himself when he was punished for your sin. You cannot be condemned. You cannot be ashamed. There's this beautiful imagery of the Lord receiving us in verse 7. The angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him and delivers them. He surrounds us when we go to him, when we seek him. I'm, I'm reminded of the story in Second Kings 6 when Elisha and, um, and the chariots of fire, and he has his servant here, and the king of Assyria is attacking Israel, and the servant with Elisha is, is despairing of life. He's afraid, rightly so. And Elisha says, Do not be afraid. For those who are with us are more than those who are with them. And the servant is like, what? No, they've got way more people than us. What are you talking about? And then Elisha prayed and said, oh, Lord, please open his eyes that he can see. So the Lord opened the eyes of the young man and he saw. And behold, the mountain was full of horses and chariots of fire all around Elisha. The Lord surrounds his servants. We can't see it often. We can't see it with our physical eyes. but He can show it to us through our hearts and trusting in Him. The Lord will surround us. And Jesus reiterates this promise which I read earlier in the service that all the Father gives me, John 6, all the Father gives me will come to me and whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. Have you struggled with your assurance? Have you ever struggled with Will God ever accept me? Go to John 6, 37, when you are struggling. Whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. And those who seek him will never lack any good thing. If we we go to God, he'll always take us in. Third point, if you cry to him, he'll hear you. Again and again throughout this psalm, we hear this... um, we hear that God's ears are open to us. He's open to our cries. Look at verse 6. This poor man cried, and the Lord heard him and saved him from all his troubles. Look at verse 15. The eyes of the Lord are toward the righteous, and his ears are toward their cry. Don't you love these anthropomorphisms of God? That he hears us, his ears are turned toward us. When the righteous cry for help, the Lord, what? What? hears, verse 17, and delivers them from all their troubles. Another truth I want you to hear this morning that, is that God is always ready to listen to you. If you've ever been to a little kid's birthday party, which in my stage of life is pretty often, picture with me for a second, all the parents are in the living room. They're all in the living room enjoying the party, and all the kids are in the playroom. Say they're upstairs somewhere. And within, you know, I don't know, 10, 15, 20 minutes, somebody's going to get hurt, right? A kid is going to start crying because someone threw a toy, hit him in the face, something happened, right? And it's amazing, and I've seen it on display. Each parent knows the exact cry of their child in contrast to every other child's voice. So when there's a cry upstairs in that playroom, there's always a parent who says, that's mine, All right, that's my kid. And they run up there. God's the same way with our cries. He knows your particular cry of despair, and he will respond. In fact, God's more ready to hear our prayers then we are to pray, aren't we? His ear is attuned to our voice, to your voice. And even when things get awful in our lives, even when we approach what we are often most afraid of in death, even death does not separate us from His ear, from from our cries to Him. He hears us and death itself is transformed. George, George Herbert, the uh, uh, poet of the, I believe 1700s, said, "Death used to be an executioner, but the gospel has made him just a gardener." Death used to be an executioner, but the gospels made him into a gardener, meaning our bodies will enter the grave, but they're like seeds that are planted, and in the resurrection will be brought to life and return with our Lord. And not even death can separate us from him or his ear. He hears us when we cry to him. Last point the fourth truth of this psalm we're kept by his power and empowered by his grace. We're kept by his power and empowered by his grace. Look at verse twenty two. The Lord redeems the life of his servants None of those who take refuge in him will be condemned. Here's the key word that really this whole entire psalm sits upon. The Lord redeems the life of his servants. That word redeem, you should know that word. The word really means purchase. And he purchases us. We are his because he bought us. And How did he buy us? What did he pay? What, for what? currency did he use? He used the death of his own son to buy us in exchange for us. And we see another hint at this. In verse 20, he keeps all his bones and not one of them is broken. That's a reference to Christ himself. If if you'll recall, going way back into Exodus chapter twelve in the Passover, one of the instructions that God gave Israel with the lamb was not to break any of the bones of the lamb. If they were to eat the meal in haste. They were to roast it. They were not to break any of the bones of the lamb. And then, when the angel of death, the angel of the Lord, would come over Israel or over Egypt, anybody who had the blood of the lamb on their doorpost would be passed over. The judgment would pass over them. They would not. The firstborn would not die in their household. But anybody not covered by the blood would be judged. Flip over to John chapter 19 with me. John 19 verse 31. This is recalling the crucifixion of Jesus on the cross. John 19 31. at once there came out blood and water. He who saw it has borne witness. His testimony is true, and he knows that he is telling the truth that you also may believe. For these things took place that the scripture might be fulfilled. Quote, not one of his bones will be broken. And again, another scripture says, they will look on him whom they have pierced. It's as if John is telling us, and sort of we, we can't make it any more clear to you, Jesus is the Passover lamb. Jesus is the Passover lamb whose bones were not broken, who died in our place, who redeems us, who God used his death, the perfect, innocent lamb, to purchase us. And so that's, the, that's what's been done for you. Right? It's all been accomplished. It's all been finished. We cannot earn anything before God. And so how, how do we respond to that? If, if we're kept by his power, we're also empowered by his grace. We're empowered to do all of the imperatives, all the commands in Psalm 34, which I haven't talked about yet. We're empowered by the gospel, by the fact that we're redeemed, but we're purchased, and we haven't earned it, but Christ earned it for us. What are we called to do then in response in this psalm? Look at, well, let's go through all the commands that David tells us. Look at verse 1. I will bless the Lord at all times. We sang about this earlier. Our first response to God's grace is what? Blessing and praise. Verse 2, it's boasting. That we should be bragging and boasting in God. Paul says in Galatians 6, "...far be it from me to boast except in the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ, by which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world." Paul's saying our only boast should be in Jesus we're told in verse 3 to magnify or make great God's name, to prize and value and an extent and in ten- intensity and sound and in importance. Magnify God. And so ask yourself is God growing in importance in your life? Or is he diminishing in importance? As you continue your Christian journey, is he becoming more important to you? Are you magnifying him? Or is he diminishing? We're called to seek the Lord. Look at verse 4. Seeking the Lord is what we're called to do and and, and it's a continual process throughout your whole life. When we're first saved, we seek the Lord. We run to Him and He saves us. But we're to continue that every day of our life. And the fear of Him is meant to drive out our fears. Verse 5, we're to look to Him. We're to look to the Lord. Those who look to him are radiant. What are you looking at these days? What are your eyes fixated on throughout the day? What most controls your attention and controls your thought life? Because often what you look at also controls your thoughts, isn't it true? If you've spent most of your day on social media, if you've spent most of your day reading the news or watching cable news, does that often control your thought life? Absolutely. What you look at, We live in a visual age today, and so in this visual age, this is a crucial question. As you focus your eyes and mind on God, your face will radiate with the joy of the Lord. If you focus your mind and your eyes on this world, your face will diminish in glory and will not radiate. Look at verse 6. We're also told to cry. This poor man cried. And the Lord heard him. In your sadness, God hears your cries. Don't hold back your shouts of sadness. Direct them toward his ear through prayer. Jesus himself wept. We're also to cry. We're told also to taste and see, which we're about to do in a few moments. We're we're to taste God. We're to We're to see Him. We're to enjoy His means of grace that He's given us to grow. That's His Word. That's His sacrament. That's prayer. These are the ways we grow and taste Him. We're to fear the Lord. Look at verse 9. Oh, fear the Lord, you His saints. For those who fear Him have no lack. The more you fear God, the less you're going to fear this world. The less you're going to fear and be anxious about the things of this world. If you fear God, Your other fears will diminish. Look at verse 11. We're to to teach the children. We're to teach the younger generations. When you're filled with with a sense of God's awe and a love for Him, you're going to want to share that. And we're called to, to pass the faith on to the next generation, to disciple the next generation. So teach in verse 11. Verse 13, another very tangible, practical way to follow the Lord. Keep your tongue from evil. Restrain your tongue. How many times has your words or my words gotten us into trouble or made a conflict worse by what we've said? We're called to restrain our tongue. Hold back from a verbal lashing, which leads to peace. Look at verse 14. Turn away from evil and do good. Seek peace and pursue it. Be peacemakers. Turn from evil. See, there's lots of ways we can put this psalm into practice. You can find lots of ways to emulate it. But let me close with this. We're not going to be perfect at any of those things. And we only do those things that I just listed in response to his grace. Not to earn his grace. And on top of that, our faith is is weak. And And God knows that. And he's given us tangible Uh, reminders of that. And we actually read about it earlier, Rick did, in our Heidelberg Catechism, that we we confessed our faith, faith together. And so as we think about the Lord's Supper, look at what we read earlier. If you go back on page six of your bulletin. How does the Lord's Supper help us? First, it says, As surely as I see with my eyes the bread of the Lord broken for me and the cup given to me, So surely his body was offered and broken for me and blood poured out for me on the cross. We have been giving something tangible to look at and see. And and secondly, as surely as we receive from the hand of the one who serves and taste with our mouth the bread and the cup, so surely he nourishes and refreshes our soul for eternal life. Brothers and sisters, the reason we have the table, the reason we have the Lord's Supper, is to strengthen our faith. He's given us tangible signs to do that. I want to close with this this quote from Kevin DeYoung. What good news God proclaims to us at the table. I fear that in most churches the Lord's Supper is either celebrated so infrequently as to be forgotten, or celebrated with such thoughtless monotony that churchgoers endure it rather than enjoy it. But the Lord's Supper is meant to nourish and strengthen our weak faith. Have you ever come to church feeling dirty and rotten? Have you ever sat through an entire sermon thinking about how you blew it with your wife this morning or how prayerless you've been in the past month? Have you ever gotten to the end of a church service only to think, I'm so distracted. I was worried about how I look. I can't even sit through church right. Have you ever wondered if God could really love you? If so, you need this gospel table. The Lord knows our faith is weak. That's why he's given us sacraments to see, to touch, to taste. And as surely as you can see this bread and cup in a few moments, so surely does God love you through Christ. As surely as you chew the food and and drain the drink, so surely has Christ died for you. Here at the table, the faith becomes sight. The simple bread and the cup give assurance that Christ came for you, Christ died for you, and Christ is coming again for you. Let's pray. Father, thank you for feeding us this morning. We thank you so much for this taste that points us forward to the great wedding feast that we get to be a part of. So Father, come Lord Jesus. We love you and we need you. Sustain us for our earthly journey. Holy Spirit,